One, a two, a one, two, three, four. Come on, once all we be talking about music, gonna talk about Beatles here on Sirius XM, gonna talk about commerce and art, and hopefully be funny. Wanna thank Kevin Hart. This, this is what's song, yellow riddle, and luxury. That was that was amazing. That was fun. That was fun. That was fun. Hey, uh, I'm actor, writer, and sometimes DJ Diallo Riddle. And I'm producer, DJ, and songwriter Luxury, aka the guy who whispers interpolation on TikTok. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed it yet, today we are talking about the Beatles, little you know underground British group that you might have heard of, and their song "Come Together." The funny thing about this episode is that like this is. The, I can't think of a more culturally big... They've been around for 60 years. Right. And that duration is a huge part of their hugeness. And I feel like there's actually... It's, it's, it's hard to say anything about the group that hasn't already been said, but we're going to try... Exactly to right. ...to say some things that get added to the We canon. think we found some cool ways to tell the story. Yep. First of all, focusing on just the single song, we're going to play for you some isolated stems, tell you some stories you may not have heard, and talk about why the song is so important to us. Exactly. Also, why it's so important to us personally. Exactly. There's right. some personal exactly stories. Right. There's some so, personal things we got to get. There's personal stuff, and like every other episode, we don't really know. We just have some. <laughs> we're going to talk about some stuff, and the rest of it's spontaneous. I have no idea the stories that Diallo has about the Beatles oh, yes. in his life. Oh, yes. I'm excited to hear. So uh, yeah, stay tuned, and we will reveal all. This is one, one song. song. You guys ready for acapella? I am ready. All right, here we go. Get ready to freak the fuck out. <laughs> Juju eyeball, he won. Holy roller, he got hair down to his knee. Yeah. I mean, iconic. <laughs> Absolutely iconic. It's like chilling. I say this maybe every episode, and I will never stop, but the word chilling is how I feel when I hear an iconic singer like John Lennon. Who didn't and like his voice, apparently. He, well, you can kind of hear it there where there's effects on his voice. You're right. Every time he recorded, he wanted to hear, as he was recording, he wanted to hear that echo, mm -hmm. that kind of slap back, which in his mind, I think was an Elvis throwback. Oh, wow. And what's interesting, just to take a little rabbit hole there, is that Elvis, when you listen to Elvis and he's got that, oh, oh, like the, the, <laughs> the slap back, it's because in the room there was a speaker and it was, that was also being recorded in the mic. Uh -huh. So it's like this accidental. It's almost like an accidental feedback. Accidental artifact of history is we associate that, that delay 50 sound, rockabilly, whatever, and Lennon just adds it using the technology of the day. But you're right, he was uncomfortable with his own yeah, voice. And yeah, I've also seen that picture of, of John where he's like clearly like, he's really young John, like he's clearly styled to look just like Elvis. He, like, oh my god, Huge yeah. Elvis fan. He loved Elvis. His first band was a rockabilly band. Yeah. Um, or Skiffle, I guess, was the name of the genre. Like uh, Skiffle right. never made it big in America, but that's like <laughs> they were trying to be American. They had washboards and stuff. Uh, when when Lennon forms the Beatles, it's a Skiffle band. So he's obsessed <laughs> with 50s Americana and Elvis especially. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk plenty about Lennon's vocals later in the show, but I just want to start the show with this. Diallo, what do the Beatles mean to you? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> a lot of people don't know this about me now, but anybody who's known me since I was a kid knows this. I was a huge Beatles fan. The first piece of music that I ever bought uh, at a record store was A Hard Day's Night. What? No way. I, I feel like it cost four ninety nine. 
at this random Wait, the record first store. album you bought what what like you bought absolutely it's the first album i remember actually wow. buying so my father was a huge jazz record collector he had something like three thousand jazz records and i had <laughs> i had a a muppet show drum set in the basement <laughs> and i would sit down there and i would drum along to his you know john coltrane records and i even drummed wow. along to like the soundtrack to star wars but when it came time for me to buy my first piece of music there was a cartoon that i used to watch that had like the beatles and i didn't know it at the time but the beatles didn't what? loan their voices to that cartoon i had no there were a idea. whole bunch of it but there was a, like a beatles cartoon and i used to love them running around on like ships. It was very like you it was know, like an unlicensed Beatles. No, cartoon? it was it was licensed. It was, okay, I feel like it's but it from, wasn't like, their the Rocky and Bullwinkle era okay, of okay. cartoons. And I would watch that show and I liked the music. And I bought a Hard Day's Night and I loved it. I loved that album and I wore a hole in it. And then I went back and got Please, uh, you know, I got Love Me Do and I got into like the early era Beatles. And then I got. <laughs> Sergeant Peppers, and I remember some of the songs on that album scared me. Yeah, like as a kid, because I didn't know. Like she's like, leaving home is kind of dark. Yeah, right? and yeah. I was also like, who are these guys? You know, on the inside cover, they don't look like the Beatles. Like right. who are these guys? Right. Um, so you know, I feel like the Beatles have been there from the very beginning. I'll never forget. <laughs> real quick, um, a friend of my father's telling him when he heard that I was listening to more of the Beatles than like the R and B at the time. He was like, no, don't do that. He's gonna <laughs> learn the wrong rhythm. Oh no, he's gonna, he's gonna <laughs> learn that other rhythm. Um, <laughs> But thankfully, I, I learned a bunch of different rhythms. Yeah. So you know, I've heard you clap. You're on the. You're on the. You're on the. Oh dip. yeah, the the one and threes. I actually yeah. literally had to like sit there and think. Yeah. I was like, "Where's the one? Where's you the three? Gotta do the so two and four. That, that didn't do become the two a thing. And four. You're you're a backbeat guy. <laughs> I will also say one of the first things I remember from you know my earliest earliest memories was John Lennon being shot and dying and seeing like all these people react to that. And I just, I knew something very bad had happened. Right. And I remember that year I asked my parents for a, for a Beatles birthday cake. And so I, I saved the little figurines from that cake and played with them like toys. You know, that was my toys. I wow. just had my little Beatles, you know, toys, which I think are still in a closet somewhere. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of like, I came into the Beatles pretty damn early in life. That's yeah. me. What do the Beatles mean to you? I can relate to everything you just said so hard. Like from the idea of the Beatles just being like wallpaper on planet Earth. It's mm. just like they're always there. They've yeah. always been there. And they've always felt like this larger than life entity. They're not just a musical group. They're a cultural phen phenomenon. It's like Coca-Cola and blue jeans and the Beatles. <laughs> the first two things being American, I guess. But as a British export, they represented this idea of musicness but also groupness because they were four guys like you were talking about the your birthday cake with the, that's important the figurines like you kind of like them as people were you were connected to <laughs> I them I licked the icing off and like they were officially toys but that was there from day one for everybody from what I understand like in 1962-63 they start giving interviews and they're charming and funny and they're yeah. really fast with the comebacks like someone will try to you know borderline insult them to their face yeah. like there's some interview where Paul's being interviewed and the guy's like so what do you think your cultural impact will be and right away Paul's like so sharp he's like is this a joke cultural impact we're just having a laugh I mean oh, I on. mean my favorite response of all time is are you a mod or you're a rocker? I'm a mocker. You know, like, <laughs> and it's so effortless. And they, and they come up with these things on the fly. And they absolutely, like, whenever they're in front of a crowd of, like, reporters, they just, like, absolutely win them over. They melt the hearts of the entire nation yeah. and the world. And we grow up many years later on a different continent. And we still have that impact on us. And you're in Atlanta, right? And I'm in San Francisco. Like, this is 
crazy that their impact, and, and even in 2023, like their impact culturally only grows with time. It, the impact only grows with time. You know what's interesting is that I think it's one of those things that can only come about when you have more than one mind come together. And I think we're going to talk a lot about the idea of these guys, specifically John and Paul, but the other guys too, you know, all throwing in, you know, contra- you and I are, are in a partnership. I have a writing partner like the idea of like working with somebody else to create something more than what one person could come up with. Like Absolutely, I think yeah. John would have always had a successful music career. Paul, I mean, the man is a hit machine. Right. You know, George might've had a, an amazing career, but at the end of the day, the fact that they all were able to come together and yes, Ringo, we're going to talk about Ringo. I was going to say Ringo. you left one out, but we're, we're going to get to talk that. about Ringo. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think, I think there's something to be said about collaboration Right. You know, in the arts, and and That's even right. if you hate the other person, we know that you know we know how this story right. ends. Even when you can't get along with the other person, whether it's the Beatles or it's Outcast or whoever, totally like the idea that you can sit down with somebody else and create something is is truly special. And by the way, I mean we're going to get to so much today, but even the phenomenon of how sometimes that is short-lived. The duration, it just can't last past, in the Beatles' case, seven, eight <laughs> years. They're together, outcasts. I don't know how many total years. Like, a lot of these wonderful relationships, they have kind of a beginning and an end point. And yeah. then the personalities that have been fiery, fiery, making beautiful art for all these years, just it combusts and goes, you know, it Absolutely. can't last. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's get into it. This song, Come Together, the first song off Abbey Road, the 11th Beatles album from 1969. It's a song that came about when Lennon met Timothy Leary at a bed-in, and it's been covered by everyone from Tina Turner to Michael Jackson. Get ready to shoot some Coca-Cola. It is Come Together. I'll tell you, from the first time I ever heard this song, I always felt like there was something evil going on. Like, there's all kinds of, like, weird imagery, like... Very dark, yeah. Juju eyeball. Right. You know, uh, grooving up slowly, always sounded a little bit sneaky. Yeah, spinal cracker. Holy roller. Like, you know, it just... It felt like, you know... The Louisiana Beatles or something right. like that. They're there was swampy. always something something going on there. Something real swampy going on. We're going to actually talk about the swampy. I didn't even know. I mean, who's Flat Top? So many questions. And why is he grooving up slowly? Well, there is. there might be a reason why it's Flat Top. And part of that comes from Lennon's love for one of his favorite musicians, which was Chuck Berry. And yep. the origin of this song, the genesis is kind of like some, some dovetailing ideas coming together for him. One was he was writing a campaign song for Timothy Leary's campaign yeah. for governor of California, <laughs> and the slogan was, come together. Imagine how different California would have turned out <laughs> if Timothy Leary of had Reagan. won in 1970. Right. I mean, like, could have been a different decade. Could have been a different planet Earth, yeah, because yeah. then it was Reagan who won and went on to become president. So a lot of things could have been different with a Leary administration. So Lenin is turning this phrase around in his mind. And as a songwriter, I recognize this. You're kind of walking around with like a bunch of fragmented ideas. And then you sit down one day and it's like you're in the studio and it's like, what do I got? What do I got? You either look at, today you look at your phone where you've got like, you know, text, um, you know, notes with different ideas. It, you know, in the back of Lennon's mind, he's got this phrase he's turning over. And then this groove that he starts riffing on, on the guitar in the studio. And what comes out of his mouth is here come old flat top grooving up slowly, that first line, which we just heard. And as he plays it, McCartney goes, wait a second, I feel like I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, it comes from this. Here 
come a flat top. He was moving up with me, then come waving goodbye in a little old souped up jitney. I put my now that nice is very similar. Would you say that that sounds similar? Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> I, I had no idea it was Ch- I, clearly. I'm not listening to enough Chuck Berry when I'm driving around. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Lennon is the fanboy, and literally, I think in his way of thinking. Now, this is a big topic, and I, as you probably yeah. know, if you've heard the show or seen my TikToks, my favorite topic is the origins of creativity and where does it cross the line from being an homage to his hero Chuck Berry versus you are ripping Chuck Berry off. And, and also, like, the yeah. whole tradition of white artists taking from black artists. There's and, some intersectionality and sort of going on here yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in a big way. and, Re- and Repackaging. I, I like the rebranding yeah. of, of stealing, if you will. But I actually don't even yeah. think of this as stealing. Yeah. Go well, ahead. Well, I agree, but yeah. go. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, here's my thing. I'm a big hip-hop fan. We've talked about this on the show before. Jay-Z starts off, I just want to love you. When the Remy's in the system, ain't no telling, will I... Or I diss them, that's what they be yelling. You know, Drake starts off um, uh, for free, the song for free with, uh, I go on and on, can't understand how how I last so long, I must have superpowers, rap 23. You know, like, both in both cases, Jay-Z is going off of an old Biggie riff, yes. Drake is going off of an old Too Short song. Right. Like, you know, I think the idea of, like, uh, interpolating, can I do that? You absolutely can. I think can. I just owe you, like, a It's okay, you don't now. owe me anything. But I think the idea of taking like just a snippet of somebody else's lyrics sort of as an homage or I would even argue a continuation. I mean, like if it's, if it's dope, just, I, I feel like that's okay. And I feel like in yeah. a weird way, Lennon has done this before hip hop makes this common practice. Does that make sense? You're like, absolutely defining what his mindset is. So yeah. he is absolutely thinking I'm not doing this. So actually, let me let me be clear. We don't know what he was thinking. I would speculate <laughs> that he was doing two things at once and probably justifying it a little bit. He was taking the melody, and I'll, I'll show you in a second just yeah. how close they are. It's a little bit so close. Well, it's and, a lot fast. Chuck Berry's also yeah. totally different. Yeah, like that that cadence is is crazy and crazy let's, fast. Let's let's pause right there, and I'll play it for you, and then yeah. let's get into okay. that. So here is a one to one comparison of the two, and what they did. So just to finish the story, and this goes into the collaboration yeah. thing. So. Lennon's in the mindset of, listen, I love Chuck Berry. This is an homage to him. I don't think I'm fooling anyone. It's the same notes. It's the same, you know, basically lyrics. And McCartney's like, yeah, and it crosses a line and we're going to get nicked and it's, there's going to be a repercussion. So they had that dynamic. We'll, we'll tell the end of the story in a minute, but just for now, here's what McCartney's hearing. So I'm going to play John Lennon's vocal, Isolated from Come Together by the Beatles. And then after that, I'm going to play Chuck Berry's isolated vocal from You Can't Catch Me. And then I'll do kind of a a slowed down and pitched down comparison so you can hear more directly how they're related. Here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly, he got... Okay, now for comparison, here's Chuck Berry. And again, this is slowed down, so it's a little different, but it is rhythmically and melodically the same. And I'll, I'll make that really clear after I play this. Here come a flat top. He was moving up with me. Then come. So this is the part, and there's another conversation to be had about doing yeah. what I'm doing because there is an argument in musicological circles that it's a little bit cheating, and in court, slow, just, it's yeah, it really it's an yeah. audience, it's a jury convincing device <laughs> that may or may not be fair. I personally am doing it here because I do think it's fair in this case. But here's what it is: I'm now going to slow down come together and pitch it down so that it matches the key. Come together is in D. We're going to go into A. 
And uh, here's what that sounds like. Now, this is layering Chuck Berry and John Lennon, and you'll just hear that they're, they're dead on the same. Listen, I, I think there's obviously, he was obviously taking that part from Chuck Berry, but yeah. I will say uh, the Chuck Berry song is fast. His is slow. Yeah. And again, he's just doing what I think, you know, especially again, coming in a in a more hip hop centric era, is still acceptable. I actually think that and this is just my theory, one of the great tragedies of John Lennon's death, among all the tragedies of it, is that he dies in nineteen eighty in New yeah. York. Yeah. I feel like John would have had such a great time with hip hop. Yes. And I've always wow. felt that way. You're like right. he is he the so walrus. Close. He is the walrus. Like I, <laughs> if you go back and listen to I Am the Walrus, I'm serious. At the end of the song, when he's going, chuba, 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 chuba. And then like it's either his voice or Ringo's voice is in the background going, ha ha. Ha, yeah, ha, 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 ha. It almost sounds like hop, hop, everybody, hop, hop. Like, I'm like, this dude would have loved hip hop. <laughs> His proto hip hop. John Lennon would have loved I think the he would have loved the early. attitude of it. Mm-hmm. I think he would have, almost all the great John songs have like this real percussive quality to the singing. Like, in this song, it's like he's basically going, pop, 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 you know, like, I am the walrus, dun, 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 dun. Like, you know, he comes with that force. Rhythmic, yeah, it's very rhythmic. I just think yeah. that that rhythmic force, I think he would have loved hip-hop, yeah. and he was almost there. Stop presses. It's not the 50th anniversary. It's the 55th anniversary of hip-hop, <laughs> and it begins right here with this gentleman. No, that's interesting. It's a great uh, connection that you made. To I those, think you would have like, loved it. I yeah. think you would have loved the attitude, the yeah. anti-establishment tone of it. I, I just, I wish that those two and things could have met. Clearly, he loves appropriating black artists, so there's also <laughs> he likes, that he, factor. He, he does like a black artist. He does. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to go even deeper into this song, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Welcome back to One Song. All right, so let's get into the song. Let's get into the stems. Let's get deep. I'm going to start with Ringo's isolated drums. Now, he record, these were recorded where he's got tea towels on the kit to make it really dry. And Diallo, you were saying earlier, we were talking a little bit about that swampy vibe. Yeah. And the slowing it down. It's, it, like, it's like a smoky mezcal. It's a smoke. Oh my God, you're making me thirsty. That's actually my favorite beverage right now. Is it? Is my favorite alcoholic beverage is a smoky mezcal. They got a great one. I wish we had a sponsor right now. Palm Springs Ace Hotel. Sponsor us one and two. (laughs) Great smoky mezcal if you're out there. Okay, so that is an unpaid sponsorship. Go squeeze them for dollars, Eric. Um, Mike. So we were also talking a minute ago about like how to change the song from the original Chuck Berry. Now, yeah. the, now they're in cahoots. Now the partnership, mm-hmm. Lennon, McCartney, who, are, who do you want to be in this story? You're, you're McCartney, you're Paul. We're in cahoots. We're like, okay, we're, we're doing this, John, because you insist, and it is a great tune, but we gotta, we've got to kind of make it different from what you're ripping off. We've got to tr- start <laughs> to hide elements of how this song is similar. Yeah. Well, we're doing a key change. They already did that. We went from A to D. And um, A major to D minor. Uh, D seventh. Well, whatever it is, it's D, and <laughs> we're also going to slow it down. We're yeah. going to that that swampiness, that kind of yeah. New Orleans vibe comes from a conscious effort to slow. Like the tempo is slower and more lugubrious. So that begins with <laughs> and let's make Get at the beat. guys. <laughs> <laughs> and let's make the beat not do 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 do. Let's make it tom toms and let's make it kind of abstract. So Ringo kills it with what I, he comes I think up. This is one with. of his best songs. 
This is an unusual beat. It's tom-toms and kick drum. It's so minimal. He's like just getting out of the way. I, I've always felt like one of the things that makes Ringo special is that he does not get in the way. I think that if he was more of a showboat drummer, you know, like people are like, oh, he can't hold a, a candle to Keith Moon. I'm like, that wasn't his job. You know what I mean? Like 100%. you can't have four people all try to share the spotlight at one time. That's not yeah. what the band was. I mean, like George has his, you know, he's sort of like the spiritual center. These are things that have been said a million times, but I think – you know, let, let, let's talk a little about. I, I want to pause here to talk about the legacy. I'm of, so glad of, you're of doing Mr. this. Ringo, Ringo needs his flowers. No, I really do because, you know, there's this quote that I think that uh, most music nerds have heard. Uh, apparently, some interviewer asked John Lennon, uh, Is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And Lennon says, He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Now, that quote has been disproved. It's not real. <laughs> Lennon never said that. But where do you stand on this? Was he. A great drummer, or do you think of him as the fourth most talented member of one of the best bands ever? So I have a really strong position about this, and it comes from me my too. own experience as yeah. a musician. At mm -hmm. the top of the show, you may have heard me. I was playing guitar. I am proudly a decent instrumentalist across the board, <laughs> and that comes from the fact a little bit that because punk rock existed in my life when I was growing up, it was okay not to be great. Yeah. So there's, But there is still in the world a very loud voice about technique and technique. talent I, and these conversations and there's i think an overemphasis by the way i also came up so punk rock was thankfully in my background but in the world in the 80s there was Eddie van halen and ingwe malmsteen and just like fast fast perfect perfect <laughs> and so those are really conflicting forces and i think the second one tends to win too often the perfectionism mm. the bigness i'm glad the we're loudness. talking about technique yeah. because you know like there are drummers who are better technicians yeah but I think of Ringo as feel, a creator. Feel, feel, no, I think of him as yeah. a creator. He's okay. a creative partner. He's there to set the mood to of the, the song. To serve the song, that's right. To serve the song. He's not there to be the most technically perfect drummer. He's there to serve the song. And can you imagine, I mean, like this song has been covered from by everybody from Ike Turner to Michael Jackson to Godsmack, like oh, everybody, <laughs> Junkie XL. So many people have covered this song and yet almost nobody changes the drums. And you why? Because it. you can't imagine this song without that distinct drum. I'd even go it's so far. It's a huge part of the character of the song. It would be, it would be not boring, but it would be, a, it wouldn't no. be and listen, the vibe. I mean, like, I don't think any of us, again, we're not saying he's the greatest drummer of all time. I love Ringo Starr. It, I, I'll tell you, there's this Quincy Jones story. Oh, I love about, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this yeah, story, yeah, but yeah. like Quincy Jones, uh, you know, apparently, you know, he was being very truthful and, and remembering some things. He's like, that, this is the iconic Quincy interview that like everything came yeah, out. Everybody was like, ooh, somebody. And then later they tried Quincy's to get him to walk say, it back. Tell him to <laughs> stop talking. But it was but all truth. I love this story. So Ringo's in the studio uh, at the same time as a bunch of black jazz drummers. And every, I mean, I've heard. I've heard uh, Hetfield uh, from James Metallica. Hetfield from Metallica. Yeah. I've I've heard so many people say the best drummers, yeah. from a technical point of view, are the jazz drummers. They can do things that you know, like a lot of the rock drummers are like, I don't know how you freaking accomplish that. Hetfield will come back to this conversation in a minute, but yes, go on. we will. So yeah. you know, um, Quincy says that there are all these you know wonderful black jazz drummers in the studio and. Ringo's struggling to record his part on some song, and he's like, oh, you know what, I'm going to go across the street and get something to eat. And so he leaves, and then one of them gets on, and it's like, hey, man, he tells the studio engineer, hey, man, fire it up. 
Fine, I'm gonna play this part. And he plays it perfectly like the first time. And then they go back, and then Ringo returns. He's like, hey, can you play me back my last take? And the engineer, being mischievous, <laughs> plays him the take that the jazz drummer played. And Ringo's like, oh, you know what? That that doesn't sound that bad at all. <laughs> the jazz drummer's like, because it ain't you, motherfucker. <laughs> That's fucking genius. I mean, like, so, I love that. Again, it's not always about being. You know, I, I would I would put this in my own career. There have been comedy writers who I think are the perfect comedy writer. They can carry a script from the blank page to a perfectly finished, you know, 36-page script. Yeah. But they're not always the writer you hire to be in that room because when you're in that room, when you're collaborating right. with all these people. It's the right person for the right job, have, right situation. You, you want somebody who's throwing out unique ideas, even if they're not always the person to carry it from the blank page to the 36th page, you know, because some people yeah. just have crazy out outside the box ideas. It's the right circumstance for the right person, the right role. It's, it's all got to be very specific to the situation. And Ringo's spe- yeah. specificity to the Beatles, like if you ever listen to early interviews, the apocryphal Lennon diss aside, like it was, <laughs> they actually did not feel that way. Don't forget, like Pete Best famously, by the way, not the only fifth Beatle, there was right. Stu Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe and, yeah. um, but Pete Best was replaced by Ringo Starr. And the story goes that it took place in a situation where once he sat down at the kit and started playing, they all instantly had chills because what Ringo brought to what the Beatles were doing was perfect. Yeah. And that's why they and that and they kept and they kept using him for a reason. I, I have another fun drummer aside. Okay. Do you know the Beatles song It's Getting Better All the Time? It's getting better yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. Sure. Do you know the story by I that? don't. That's from so, so Sergeant Pepper. Ringo yeah. got sick. And missed a couple of dates. Yeah. And they had to bring on another drummer. This is actually oh, wow. during Beatlemania. Okay. They had a, I forget the oh, guy's name. Oh, it's a tour, name. right? Yeah, It yeah. was during the tour. Story, yeah. And um, and after every gig, this guy kind of wanted the job so bad, he would always tell John and Paul, he's like, hey, I think it's getting better all the time. Oh, no way. So, that's where that line comes so, from? Yeah. That's and great. so Paul starts pinning a song called, it's getting better all the time. Oh, my God. And famously, John pokes his head and he hears him singing this, this chorus, it's getting better all the time. John Pokes said he's like, it can't, it can't get, get no, no worse. worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which that's to great. me encapsulates so much of what makes the Beatles special. That's The partnership between them is exactly, <laughs> it's moments like that. And famously, the although- partnership, man. Their partnership. And famously, all their songs are credited to Lennon-McCartney. But really what's happening is they're kind of writing their own songs and bringing them to the group. And the- contribution from the other person is often as little as what you just said. I don't know if the, in that story, McCartney wrote everything else and Lennon just, but that was enough <laughs> that was to enough. make the collaboration a 50-50 enough. partnership. Another yeah. great story, which I love is, you know, that song, um, it's always funny because it's a similar thing. McCartney writes the kind of sunny, shiny, major key, happy lyrics yeah. in another a song. In life is a classic um, example, yeah. We can work it out is another one. Gotta see it my way. Da, 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 da. We can work it out. We can work it out. And then Lennon comes in and the my life part, is, is very short <laughs> and there's no time. <laughs> and it's For so and fighting. It's so funny yeah. and it's dark and it's minor. And then we're back to Paul, sunny and happy. <laughs> <laughs> the classic is woke up, jumped out of bed, right. dread comb across, across my, my head. head. The other guy's talking about blowing his Death. brains out in a right. car. Blowing so his brain out in his car. Right. <laughs> time and time again, that's the, the nature of the Lennon McCartney. interaction is a little bit of yin to the yang a little bit of darkness to the light but just to close out on Ringo I think it's a classic example of why a partnership is different than a solo mission totally and you know leave I, the only thing I hold against Ringo Starr is Octopus's Garden it's one of my least favorite Beatles songs I like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade 
It's not Sorry, a good Ringo, song. But I think that, you know, he was a great collaborator and he brought so much to this song and others. And just to put a final touch also on the whole giving Ringo his flowers, I think he's in a group with two other drummers that I just want to defend in public. Okay. So I'm ready to do it. Oh, here, here we go. I'm going out on a limb. Here it's not go. even a limb. It shouldn't be a limb. No, this is a limb. This is the limb. Okay. Ringo, Meg White from the White Stripes. Okay. And... F- Frankly, we were talking about Metallica. Frankly, Lars Ulrich from Metallica, Ulrich uh-huh. from Metallica. These are three drummers that just like are notoriously always singled out as being like that guy. You know, imagine if the band didn't have this jerk <laughs> dragging things down. But it's I didn't the know same. would drag the Metallica drummer. I didn't know that. Lars is famously considered like kind of lead footed. Like he's like kind of not doing the fills are a little corny or whatever it is, but like Metallica without Lars wouldn't be Metallica. And I'm a big Metallica fan. Well, there you go. And I love the fact that what he brings into the situation is kind of a Ringo-esque, not the technical guy, but the idea guy. Not he's serving the song. He's also a co-songwriter. He's also just a force within the band to like, let's go, let's win, let's be number one. Like that's what Lars brings to the band. <laughs> and if you had some like hired gun who was incredible technically, I think frankly it wouldn't be as heartfelt. And last but not least, in my like triumvirate, my holy trinity of drummers that deserve underrated more flowers, drummers. underrated drummers. Meg White is they're a two-piece band. Jack White is playing guitar. There's no bass player. It's this sort of bluesy kind of cute. It's got the colors. That whole package works <laughs> because Meg is playing from a willfully, I don't want to say naive, but I think it really is sort of consciously naive in the sense that Jack heard her and it's like, that's what this situation needs. Right. So it's not to diss her or throw under the bus to call her drumming simplistic and naive. That's on purpose. She wasn't a great drummer, but that's what the White Stripes needed to be a great band. Let me tell you, you went out on that limb, <laughs> and you limb. are nesting, swung, my friend. You are nesting on that limb. Rockin' Robin. I'm proud of it, too. There I'll stand by those words. <laughs> I, I can't think about this song without thinking about the keys in it. That Rhodes, like that super, we've, we've used swampy and smoky. I'm running out of yeah. adjectives, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, that super bluesy solo, which, um, why don't we play it, and then we'll talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Let's listen. You know, as we listen to that right now, I'm just reminded of how uh, just a few months prior to them recording this song, Come Together, in mid-69, they had just brought Billy Preston into the band uh, to collaborate on the song Get Back, which is actually the only Beatles song where it's the Beatles with Billy Preston. Uh-huh. Like, so this is an American keyboard player, if you don't know. if you In the song Get Back, there's this wonderful Rhodes solo and part and the rooftop concert. So this was a black... American keyboard player who had they had met with Little Richard in Hamburg. He was in the back of their mind, and they bring him in to kind of inject the band with some new energy. The second that they brought in a black man, the <laughs> Beatles broke up. This oh, is so man. messed up. That's not something I'd ever considered before. <laughs> so I'm thinking about that because hearing this, this is a very Billy Preston-esque thing to play, this rhythmic part on a Rhodes and just a few months earlier, they were so excited by Billy Preston playing the road. So <laughs> there you go. it just kind of occurs to me that there may be a connection there. But a funny thing also about this part is that originally McCartney was kind of the better technical player, especially on keyboards. Mm-hmm. And so Lennon sat him down and kind of said, you know, kind of gave him a description of what he wanted. And McCartney plays this part and Lennon's like, that's wonderful. I love that. 
And then he erases McCartney's take and does it himself. He just <laughs> rips off what McCartney does wholesale. So that's McCartney's idea recorded by Lennon that we just heard. That, I mean, that's the crazy thing about a partnership is that you have to kind of know what the lines are. Like, yeah. you know, there's some. Right. And by the way, it's like any kind of like long term relationship. Like some things become completely sore subjects. You know, to yeah. never bring them up. And then other things like, you know. Lennon knew that he could replace McCartney's part on that, and it wasn't going to blow up the relationship. Are you right. a Lennon or McCartney guy? Well, I was. I'll answer that in a second. But it's I, you're absolutely right. But what's funny to think about is in 1963 that may have been tolerated, but maybe in <laughs> mid 69 when they're like Lennon's about to leave the band a few minutes later, like mm-hmm. maybe this wasn't the best timing for him <laughs> to have done that. But um, and my so back to the question. This is. This is a question we all grow up in. By the way, I don't think it's a binary choice. You don't have to be. I'm just curious if you are. You know, because it is such a part of our cultural landscape, you get these senses like McCartney's the cute one, the melody one. He's the uh, sort of like song and dance guy, you know, like 30s musical kind of influences. He's the, you know. (laughs) That's because of Lady Madonna, I'm sure. (laughs) It's among, yeah, among other things. And, and, and. Eleanor Rigby, you know, he's the one who brings strings indirectly with Martin, George Martin's help. And Lennon's the cool one, the angry one, the one who's really into the blues and American music. And and then Ringo's the... the Ringo was like the child. When I was a child, yeah. to me, I was like, oh, Ringo's like their cool little brother yeah. who gets to play with the band. And he's kind of the peacemaker. And he's kind of the oldest member of the band. <laughs> he's older right? than the other three. You're yeah. right. And he, and he ends up in, in, again, in Get Back, you'll see how much of a peacemaker he is. He's just... Just like he's serving the song, he's just there to serve the band. In a weird, way he, was, in a weird way, he was the journeyman yeah. in the group. I'll say for me, I growing up, I was always like a Lennon guy. He seemed cool. He seemed like the leader. Yeah. You know, um, When I got to my 20s and I started to deconstruct music in my head mm-hmm. and sort of go off, the, you know, off into just music construction, I really grew to appreciate Paul. I was actually yes. sad that I had been a drummer and not a bassist because I, whether it was the Beatles or Daft Punk or most of my favorite hip hop songs, the bass line was always what drew me in. Totally. And I was always like, oh man, people who can play the bass, that's like pure magic. Now I feel like I'm legitimately like a person who respects everybody's contribution. I'm so glad you landed the there because I was thinking about how I didn't answer the question because I couldn't. As I was going through the whole thing, it's like, I like my mom. I like my dad. Like, I, I can't just pick one. It's a Sophie's choice to pick a beetle. <laughs> but hey, backing up. Good listen, I will say this. I will say this. Um, the shoot me. Can we can we hear a little bit of the vocals? Because I will say, growing up, yeah. and even even up until you did a TikTok video about it, I never knew he said shoot me. Now I, keep- I always thought it was shoot I thought it was just like some some scatting or something. I may overuse the word chilling in this room in uh-huh. this context, and I'm sorry, but this is this is the chillingest okay. of all. Is hearing what Lennon was actually saying because it's actually a little bit covered up. You can't really tell. It just sounds like shh, right. You can't really hear the sounds whole like thing. Shh, but he is actually saying "shoot me," and, and here's Lennon's isolated vocals from that section. And as you now, there's hear- a sound over the me, clearly, and I still don't really hear shoot me. He's like, clapping. This is the Yanni, whatever that thing was. <laughs> Yanni and Laurel. Yeah. It's Go like ahead. we were saying a second ago, what you're hearing there is a couple things. One, you're hearing Lennon with delay on his vocals. Mm. It's kind of like his hero, Elvis, got the slap back in the room. Yeah, he wanted yeah. that all the time. But he's also, because he's not playing guitar, his hands are free, and he's clapping. So he's saying, shoot me. And they're both going through this delay, and it becomes this kind of layered, denser noise that makes 
the lyrics a little harder to make. Wow, out. yeah, because I gotta say, I still don't hear "Shoot Me," but yeah. you know, I, I feel like if I'm if I'm really listening for it, I can kind of pretend it's there. Well, and also we know it's there because it was another phrase he'd been turning in his head for another song mm. that incomplete and never was released. And, and to people who who wonder about these things, he was saying "Shoot Me" probably as a heroin reference. Uh, and all the people who were into like the Paul is dead theory thought it was oh, you know they they killed Paul they shot him you know like there's and then obviously there's the ultimate irony that doesn't even really need to be stated it doesn't but, need to be said but. um you know yeah it's 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 crazy that he said shoot me but I, I will say his death in 1980 affected mm-hmm. all of us at the time yeah but I remember somebody had because I was really little but somebody had spray painted it John Lennon 1940 to 1980 right by our house like at a, on a wall near us yeah. so for years we would drive past that and it's just embedded in my head this idea of John Lennon 1940 to 1980 as I grow yeah. up I'm like that age 40 gets more and more like wow that is the yeah. tragedy of it only being 40 Absolutely. years old so that wonderful story about Lennon and McCartney kind of quasi-fighting over who gets to play the keyboard part. <laughs> or maybe there wasn't a fight. Maybe Lennon was just yeah. like, hey, yo, it's my song. Thanks for the idea. Take, take a hike. Go walk around, the, walk around the block and have a cigarette break. Yeah. It really gets to the heart of the tension, of potentially the tension in a creative partnership. There can be tension. <laughs> there's a lot of trust that you build, but there's also probably resentments. There's all kinds of there, emotions there that from 10 years it. ago that didn't get resolved. I mean, you of all people, you, you and Bashir have been writing partners for like 20-something yeah, years, yeah, well, right? Yeah, I've known him since... <laughs> Known him since 1994. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that's beautiful. I that mean, all yeah. these years later, you're still writing. Well, yeah, together. I mean, like we still, we always call it going to the. We're always down to like we may argue, but we generally are like down to get back on the playground. And you know, after 10 minutes of anger, listen, I think that yeah, partnerships there can be tension there. I think that in in the case of me and Bashir, we've worked on many TV shows and projects and commercials and all kinds of stuff. I think it's always trying to show the other person mutual respect. I would never try and figure out like who's the Lennon or who's the McCartney in that, that partnership because yeah. no, seriously, I think there are things that I do without getting specific. I think there are things that I do in our collaborations that are, you know, specific to me and my talents. And I think that there are wonderful, wonderful things that he does that I'm like, oh shit, how did he do that? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I think there's still in the best relationship sort of this fascination with how did that person pull off that magic? I think as long as that's there, right. the relationship is still there. At some point, if one of them is like, that person's not doing anything I can't do. Well, then that's when things can start to crumble. But I, I, I think, thankfully, we haven't reached that place. By yeah. the way, you and I are in a, a partnership. Right. Well, we're like we're in an earlier. We're doing stuff right now. Well, Go yeah, ahead. but it's funny because it's like you're, it's, it, there's so many parallels to relationships and marriages, too. Yeah. It's like, you know, over time, two people that, first of all, on day one were the way they were, but like they <laughs> evolve differently. And you've got Absolutely. to sort of make sure that you bring it back and, you know, check in with the other person. It's, there's emotional stuff that happens behind yeah. the scenes when you're making art and making TV shows and music. So it's interesting to think about like how similar it is to like relationships. And I, I'm always trying to figure out in our relationship, who's yeah. the Lennon and who's the McCartney? Oh, I have my theories. Who's the violent? Uh, no, see, we can't. There's too <laughs> We're many. We're not saying anybody's We're, violent. But who's much. the cutting sarcastic one? I think we both one. would like to think, look, it's challenging. The image of Lennon is cool. The reality of his story is far more complicated. We don't Wait, need to get yeah, into all the things yeah. that made him an imperfect person. Yeah. McCartney is a lovable, uh, literally a living legend. We both have a shared friend. Shout out to Chris Holmes, our buddy, who literally is his DJ. Our friend's yeah. job is to go on tour with Paul McCartney and Absolutely. be his DJ. So the idea He's of, now the fifth Beatle. He is not. Chris, you're the fifth Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's an easy answer, um, but I think we're both. But, I, but I think I'm George. Oh, okay. I'm George, George is like the younger one. Well, you are the younger one between the two of us. And what was the 
other A side to this come together single, but something. Right, it all comes together. It the Mac- comes together. Harrison's probably most beloved composition. It's been covered like by come together's been covered people. by yeah. whatever three hundred people. I think I think something may have been covered by three thousand, including Frank Sinatra. Like so. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is the partnership. If you're the George and I'm the Paul, I can live with that. I can live with <laughs> oh, that. Oh, you claim Paul? Oh, wait, I thought you just Forget said you, you man. George. You were supposed oh, to say... Now I'm seeing that violent <laughs> Lennon side come out in you. You're supposed to say George Martin. Nobody's supposed to claim Lennon or Paul McCartney. Speaking of Lennon, let's talk about his vocals. Let's talk about him. Hold you in his armchair, you can feel his disease. Come, come together, together right now. Over me. Shoot me. That's, that's it. It's a short chorus. It's wow, two that's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. You know, one of the things I love about this song are the lyrics. You know, even though I said earlier that, like, you know, it kind of, it sounded spooky and a little bit scary to, to, to young me. Like, it actually has some of the things that I appreciate the most about, uh, especially, like, the John sort of lyrically driven songs, which is, they they have a sort of nonsensical right sort of quality. Right, it reminds ups. me of uh, David Byrne and Talking Heads. Yeah, yeah. Who you know famously says stop making sense to himself while recording a song. Yes, because he was like, <laughs> oh, you're making too much sense. Like I love that, but I will say, growing up, I thought that each verse was about a different Beatle. Oh, that's I thought each verse was so. I thought that uh, you know high you know Holy Roller. Juju Eyeball, it was all about, like, spirituality. So I thought that was George. George, right. I thought, you know, obviously bag production, Spinal Cracker being a reference to the car accident he got into when uh, Yoko was pregnant. Oh, man. I thought that was about John. Um, He's so – what is he? he, He's so good looking, but he's so – he's so good looking. Got to be good looking because he's so hard to see. Because he's so hard to see. I thought that was Paul. Okay. You know, before we did this episode, I went back and I read him. And now I actually think that every verse might be about John. Okay. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, could, be, I could be wrong about right. this because I don't see where the stuff in the second verse is about Ringo at all, unless there's just yeah. some yeah. part of Ringo's personality that we don't know. But yeah, for most of my life, I thought each verse was about a different Beatle. Yeah. And then now I, now I don't know, you know. That's an interesting take. Yeah, I never considered any of that. Really, no. really smart. Anyway, that's that's the stuff I be thinking about when I'm listening to the Beatles. I I do feel like Come Together is one of those songs that has like a universal appeal. Right. You know, I feel like you can play it for people who claim to not like the Beatles. And there's so many. Shout out to all the people who don't like the Beatles. I think that's a perfectly fine position to take. It's not my position, but like, you know, nobody should force you to like the Beatles. But uh, I do feel like this is one of those songs that truly has a universal appeal to so many different types of genre. Uh, genres of music. But if I can piece both of what you just, those yeah. two ideas together, what's interesting is, and this as a songwriter, I know this from experience, like you can get away with an awful lot in the verse in terms of the storytelling where it doesn't all have to make sense. It, it, it should tell a story, it should be evocative, but a lot of it sometimes is just like throwing a phrase out that that's very specific or just a line that you know everyone's going to love. Feet down below his knees. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't Feet necess- down below his knees. It sounds like, wait a second. Self-evident. We all have feet below his <laughs> It's not very special. Yeah. What's your favorite lyric in the song? <laughs> I mean, I th- I think it's hard because one and one and one is three. Such a good one. It's a great one. Such a, one and one and one. Is, like, it's, it's like... Uh, that, again, repetition when right. it works, that, that shit powers. And it's like almost a self evident it's like ironically delivered, but accurately, truthfully delivered. Because <laughs> it's like kind of like 
it's it's so powerful the delivery like this is an important thing i'm saying but it's like this is the thing that every two-year-old knows at the same time <laughs> by the way uh yeah. i think it's the it's it's apparently the only lennon mccartney song to never go number one anywhere the song one and one is two and it was written by paul mccartney and it comes in the verse that i thought was about paul mccartney's it comes it's, wow. It's in that last verse that ends with the "Got to Be Good Looking." So there's a song called almost, "One and One Is Two. One and One Is Two. I don't know that one. And it was a song that was rejected. Oh, and so okay. the, you know, like some of their songs were rejected. Yeah, yeah. For the group, so they gave them to other people, and they usually went on to do pretty good for those other groups. Yeah. But I think that that's got the record as like the worst Beatles, you know, Beatles written song of oh, all time or something like that. In, in the verse, you can almost do whatever you want as long as in the chorus you land with something big, simple, universal. Yeah. And two words come together. What an idea that, first of all, is easily understood. It's not <laughs> abstract and Dada-esque and William Burroughs inspired. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's just come together, which, by the way, let's let's face it, maybe Timothy Leary deserves a little songwriting credit along with, you know. <laughs> I, just like the, I just like the lyrics because John is the king of, like, the ironic, like, you know, baby, you're a rich man. You right. know, like, the, things like that. You right. know, got to be good looking because he's so hard to see. Yeah, he really I, packs a punch in a, like, little bumper sticker size chunk. They're just little, yeah. they're, all, they're not puns. Well, I don't know what you call that, but they're humorous. They're a little clever. They're Humorous lines. and they're clever, and couplets. I think it speaks to <laughs> just some humorous couplets yeah. from, from the Lennon himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so many good lyrics in this one. So many lyrics I actually got wrong when I first heard them. For sure. You know, there's too. that one line like, hold you in his arms till you can feel his disease. Is that not what he says? That's what he says. I think, like, so many people, it's like, I heard like hold you in his armchair or something oh, like that. Like yeah. it's, it's no, you're kinda, right. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was armchair. By the way, it's not armchair. Okay, not to, you know, I am a Nirvana fan, I guess, because yeah. a lot of things remind me of Nirvana, and uh, that that line about you can feel his disease will always remind me of you know, wish I could eat your disease till you turn black, you know? Oh, like, right. Heart-shaped box. Disease is not a word that a lot of people have yeah. put into a song. Kind of infects the song with a little bit oh, of like, Ugh. Dark. Yeah. Just little dark. spores, little mold but, spores. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> come come for talk about music, but stay for references to mold spores. But it's people. funny about sound, about lyrics, too, because I'm the kind of person, and I know that there's both, I'm, there are people that are lyric centric and they're yeah. Bob Dylan fans. I'm just, I'm, that's not who I am. Yeah. I'm sound first. And I'm, yeah, as a musician, too. performer, DJ, like. I didn't I, know we had that in common. I, yeah. There's a part of me, and we'll talk about this on another show, but okay. the, the Bob Dylan cult, I'm not a part of. I just, and I, I saw an Elliott Smith show once and I just like fell asleep. <laughs> like, I can't do, I'm sound centric, I think, in the way I listen. And that includes lyrical analysis where I'll hear something for years and not really notice even that I didn't know what the words were. Yeah. And like, even as you were saying it, I could have gone either way. You could have told me that it was armchair. You could have told me it was arms. I mean, like, I don't know even now. Which Listen, is I mean, like, it happens all the time. People just still think to you me. said, like, you know, it just excuse phones. me while I kiss this guy right. instead of kiss oh the sky. Yeah. You know, we should do a whole segment on what you thought the lyric was and what that lyric actually is. I, when I was growing up, I thought Boogie Wonderland was Boogie Was a Man. You know, I was like, Boogie was a man. I was like, who is Boogie? Wait, that, that makes more sense than Boogie Wonderland. That's not a sensical phrase. Boogie was a man. Boogie was a man. The story of, that's a story. The story of Boogie. No, it's, it's more than that. It goes deep. Boogie was, was a man, but he's all was a man, so he's dead. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, you could dive deep on that's Boogie. That's a rich analysis right I know, there. I was looking for stories even then. You know what? my friend? You just made me think. My favorite version of that, it's not even my own story to tell, but... Our friend from high school, Hannah McElhenney, if you're out there, I love the fact that she always thought that that the Michael Jackson song was 
take a walk to the post office. Don't stop doing it. I think of that to this day whenever I hear don't stop till you get enough. Now, he was just trying to mail a letter. By the way, he was just trying to mail a letter. But by the way, what the actual lyric is, is weird too. It's like, for the force don't stop. It's like a Star Wars reference. He had seen Star Wars. No, a lot of people don't know this. <laughs> if you take away one thing... The that is Force, a Star Wars song. Yes, it's a Star Wars song. That's yes. what people don't know about that yeah, song. Yeah. And we're not even kidding. We're not So kidding. come for the Beatles, stay for the Michael Jackson this facts. This is no joke. Here's another Michael Jackson fact. He covered Come Together. What? When he owned All their catalog. When he, he had to, he like sent a, an email to himself, an early, you know, CC mail email to himself. He's okay. like, hey, can I cover the Beatles? Yes, you can, Michael, because you own that shit. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Famously, the end, cover of, their whole catalog the end of the Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney friendship is when Jackson yes. bought out the bought and out from put, under he, he McCartney's let Nike use nose. it in one of the yeah. greatest commercials of all time. The revolution so, one. You know, yeah, no, that's a, it's actually another Lennon song. song. Great Lennon song. <laughs> so early we were talking about Chuck Berry, and we were also talking about how in the partnership, how John and Paul were sort of like debating, okay, if it is a Nick, if it isn't a Nick, how are we going to get away with it? If this is an homage, is it something that we might get sued for? They they had some disagreement about that, and and. Clearly, Lennon was like, you know what? All we have to do is slow it down and make some tweaks. And McCartney was like, okay, brother. Sure enough, they got sued by uh, by Chuck Berry's publisher, yeah. Morris Levy, who took him to court, and he won. And as part of the settlement, Lennon ended up having to record, ironically, a few songs from Levy's right. catalog, including You Can't Catch Me, yeah. the Chuck Berry song. <laughs> like in the mid-70s, right? In the mid-70s, they come out on these kind of lesser-known records um, that were you know, pressed up by Levy's kind of cheap... Um, he, he's, yeah, this so guy's this literally is, a gangster, by the way. Does this mean that yeah. like Chuck Berry didn't own his own publishing, this other guy did? The so Big, big a, Seven Publishing or whatever it's called? There's so much... This is such a trope that I'm almost embarrassed and annoyed to have to say it, but Morris Levy was a gentleman of whiteness in the music industry <laughs> who ripped off his black clients, including Chuck Berry, and specifically how he did it, you're dead right. He would literally put his name on the publishing credits so that Chuck Berry wouldn't get his own royalties as a writer that on his sucks. own material. Now, is that because yeah. nowadays everybody in the business knows about publishing? And yeah. Is it because that first, like that, that 50s generation of black artists didn't know about publishing or were they muscled out? The simplest answer to a very deeply complicated, not complicated question, but like there's a lot to unpack there. But the simple answer is absolutely not. They were told that this would happen, but that this would happen was a complete lie. And they didn't uh -huh. have the structure, the, the lawyers, the knowledgeable people with the label owners themselves of color who could tell them, you know what, you should look at uh, make, this, this make is sure not that good you for you. have yeah. your publisher. They had no way of knowing. Also, it's early in the music industry, so there isn't a lot of like history behind like stories of other people that can say, don't do what I did. But publishing has been known about since Tin Pan Alley in the 1920s. I yeah. mean, like I have to think at some point these artists knew about publishing. They just, I feel like they were probably muscled out of it. The I mean, specific like, I like way they, in which they yeah. were ripped off, I'm sure varied from situation yeah, to yeah. situation. Yeah. Levy's version was to have them sign whatever the agreement looked like. And right. then in the background, however the accounting you know books were being cooked, just not pay him out what was owed to him. And just to be clear, like Morris Levy, the publisher, Barry's publisher who sued Lennon, was himself a criminal and was literally had mob ties and was about to serve a prison sentence. And then he died before he could go to jail. <sighs> Got off scot-free. Got off scot-free, as it were, yeah. Okay, so that was Come Together, uh, the Beatles. We hope you learned some things about the Beatles you didn't know. We hope you learned some things about us you didn't know. Before we take off, uh, everybody's always asked this. Beatles or Stones? Beatles or Stones? 
that is that is the question. Yeah. And uh, boy, do I wrestle I think with I know. That one. I think I know for you. Interesting. What do you think my answer is going to be? Well, I mean, I think you like the Beatles more than the Stones. So you're technically right, and I do like the Beatles more than the Stones. But like in recent years, I have to say, kind of rising above because this is all the pantheon of great British rock bands from the '60s. You've got also the Who's in the corner saying, "What yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. The Sheer is a huge fan of the Who. By the way. And then there's Sabbath and Zeppelin and yeah. Queen saying, "Hey, we're coming soon. What about yeah, us? Yeah. Are we in this conversation?" Actually, from from that kind of wider lens, the uh-huh. Kinks in the recent kinks, years, nice. the Kinks have really Absolutely. been rising the in my esteem. A band that does not yeah. get their due. The Kinks, one of the great British rock bands. We all know you really got me, and you know, da 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 da, all day and all of the night. Yeah. All day. Which was covered by Two Live Crew masterfully. <laughs> four and four, we fucked on the floor in the bedroom all day and all of the night. <laughs> that was actually the first time I heard that chorus. But, but keep going. So for the me, kinks. the kinks got robbed basically of their opportunity to be in that question. Because it could have been the Beatles versus the kinks or it could have been the Stones versus the kinks. But literally, they went to America in 64, 65. They were, they were bigger, yeah. arguably, if, if not on par, because no, You Really Got Me was the number one single and their first single. So out of the gate in 64, they're huge. They come to America, and they piss off the wrong people <laughs> because they're, they're brothers fighting, by the yeah. way, which is another, right? Back to the collaborations. Oasis, there you go. These are two brothers fighting. They're fighting too much. They get kicked out of America and banned for four years. Wow. They missed the entire... 60s British invasion. They are not part of everything where the Beatles come and take over the planet. Oh. Yeah. And it's all because they just sort of fought with the wrong like TV producer behind the scenes or something <laughs> like that. Okay. And meanwhile, they're writing all these songs, Waterloo Sunset, that like super inspire McCartney and the Beatles. So they're like a huge influence undersung. I'm actually going to answer Beatles versus Stones officially. I'm officially saying Kinks. Okay. I like what you did there, and uh, I'm going to take that ball and say, uh, I think go back and discover The Seeds, because The Seeds are one of my favorite groups from the 60s. I do not even know The Seeds. The Seeds are really, really cool. Check out a song, uh, Can't Seem to Make You Mine, by The Seeds. Are you gonna put them above the Beatles or above the Stones? No, I'm not putting it. Okay, I'm not. I, I hate comparing groups. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't even like comparing it's genres because so it's, so it's so different. Painful. Yeah. You know, like different you and days. I will. We'll talk about. Well, who are the Stones of hip hop? Who are yeah. the Beatles of hip hop? There are no perfect analogies. That's no the third analogies. time on this show you've brought that up, saying that you don't like to talk about it, but we love to talk <laughs> about it. I'm, we love. I hate this it game. so much. I'm in, always fast. Future episodes. Stay tuned because we're gonna. Bur- this is gonna have to be. <laughs> by a the segment. way, Outcast is the Beatles of hip hop, only because that is a partnership yeah. that did not last as long as some of us. Does that mean the Stones are the Wu Tang? Wu Tang are the Stones. That's interesting. I'll think about we'll that. Have to one. think about that. I'll have a good. This answer is an by ongoing discussion. Yes, it is. Yeah. Dude, that was so much fun. Luxury, help me end this thing. Let's end this thing. Well, I've been producer and DJ and songwriter luxury. <laughs> and I am the actor, writer, and sometimes DJ with feet below his knees, Diallo Riddle. And this is one song, Diallo Riddle. We'll see you next time. One Song is a Sirius XM and Kevin Hart's LOL Radio production. It's hosted by me, Luxury, and my friend Diallo Riddle. 
This episode was produced by Matthew Nelson with engineering from Marcus Hum. Additional production support from Leslie Guam, Charles Childers, and Alicia Shimada. This show is executive produced by Kevin Hart, Ty Randolph, Mike Stein, Brian Smiley, Eric Eddings, and Eric Wilde.